Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Politicana. Today we are in episode 77. It is May 14th. My name is T Tyler and of course I'm with my co-host. almost misspoke my name. Uh, Pratik and Nick. How's it going today, uh, Pratik and Nick? I'm good. I think it's a great day outside, at least in my end of the waters. DC is kind of really bad weather, but North Carolina is pretty good. What about you, Nick? How's it going? I'm doing pretty well. I'm glad we have a new uh, co-host today, Toiler. It's been a while since I've seen him, so, you know, great to be back on the show with you guys. A lot's been going on this week, which it felt like a slow week, but at the same time, we've got a COVID outbreak in North Korea. We've got a U.S. WNB WNBA player being ransomed uh, for release by the Russian authorities. And you also have Jen Psaki's last press conference amongst a slew of other topics. So let's get right into it. First, I wanted to ask Pratik and Tyler on the North Korea issue. As we've all heard, they've had an outbreak of COVID-19, and they're sort of asking the world for some help here. So should U.S. foreign aid be used to help North Korea get through this outbreak of COVID-19? Pratik, Tyler, what do you think? This is a really tough issue because, like, you want to support people and their right to be alive, have human rights and whatnot. But anytime we've given money to North Korea in the past, they've flipped it. They've flipped the propaganda to say that we were the causes of their problems and they were the ones that alleviated it. Uh, the, the Un dynasty was the one that was able to fix all these issues that the rest of the world brought upon them. And because of that, they get to continue their reign. And unfortunately, and as harsh as it is, supporting them over time only props up the current regime. And if that's something we want to see uh, maybe gotten rid of over the next few decades, then there's no way we can help them at this point. They kind of have to suffer, which is the worst thing in the world. No one wants to see people suffer. But how many people are going to suffer when they nuke another nation because they're unhinged and willing to do that? So it's, it's a really tough issue, but just given their current regime and how authoritarian it is and how bad they are to their people already, it's, it's a real shame. But I don't really know that we can provide much aid to these people um, at this point. So, I don't know. I, I've thought about this. I mean, generally speaking, I'm a neocon. I believe that you should provide aid to people if it's necessary. You need to be, you need to do whatever is more strategically beneficial to your country as a whole. I think when it comes to North Korea, North Korea is seen as an enemy to the United States and to most of the world. They haven't really done any good anywhere. They don't really even give rights to their own people. They're, you know, this is a bad country to be in. If people that are in North Korea, they're never even going to have the opportunity to even listen to this podcast because North Korea bans all communication anywhere because it's North Korea. I think that in many cases, things like this may help make the world, you know, closer. You might be able to get North Korea and America and a lot of these other countries to have more communication, which can be seen as a good thing. However, on the flip side, if you do assist North Korea, more than likely it's going to be um, one of those that's probably not going to benefit us in any way. And it's bad to look at benefits and costs whenever you're dealing with people that are dying in some other foreign country. But I think it is something that we need to analyze in more detail. And usually, most, in most cases, America has assisted a lot of countries that haven't really been good to us in the past. And North Korea is one of those where we've been trying to build a better relationship with, whether it was under Trump's presidency and in the current presidency. But we do need to analyze that and we need to make sure that we think strategically on what's going to benefit the Amer America in the best way. 
That's totally fair. And I think on the one hand, I do want to say we should try to provide assistance to countries, even if we're not their you know, closest friend. And even if they, you know, in this case, may be an enemy who's threatened us on some case, where if there is a truly like horrific natural disaster that's going on, I think we should. However, for this, because the information blockade that exists, it's not clear what the extent of the situation is. Like if it was you know, wake up tomorrow and there's a zombie apocalypse, yeah, I think we should probably, you know, contribute some aid. After all, between 1995 to 2005, the Congressional Budget Office reported that the United States contributed over a billion dollars in international aid to North Korea, 60% of which was for food, 40% of which was for energy. And that sort of tapered out under the Obama administration after 08. But that aside, I think that's the real challenge here. We don't know the extent to which this is happening. And it's, do you trust the regime to accurately report on what's actually going on in the country? And furthermore, it's not like they're really traveling anywhere. It's not like the people who are getting sick in North Korea are then going to spread that to other countries. If anything, they would spread, be spreading it north into China. And as we all know, China has very strict lockdown stuff. So the potential of this going anywhere else in the world, very slim. At the same time, I think generally we think of the North Korean population in the terms that you guys both described, which is they have little rights and that they're being controlled by this authoritarian regime in a lot of cases. Their lives are totally structured, the rest of it. Um, so I definitely feel some you know, pity um, for the North Korean people, but at the same time, uh, you know, just very hard to trust whatever information is coming out and there are probably other countries where our resources would be put to better use. Yeah, but like the the problem here is they're China's ally. China's propped them up for how many years? Why aren't they supplying aid? It's not like they don't want to become the hegemon of the world. So they're they have the capabilities, they have the economic uh, supplies. They are able to send this over, and it seems like China is not willing to help enough. I think that kind of signals to the rest of the world. If China is the dominant economy in the world, are they going to be providing humanitarian aid when it's necessary? Or are they just going to be isolationist? And that's a big thing to consider in the future. It's like, do you want these people to be running the world, essentially, when they're not willing to help out in cases where even their allies are under distress? And they can easily help out. A billion dollars for China isn't that big of a deal. And it seems like it would it would provide a lot of aid to them at this point. So, um, yeah, I... I, I wish China would be supporting them more. I don't think it's really the West's job at this point. I think, Tyler, if you look at it in that same aspect, I think you look at any of the issues that go around in the world. I mean, the Palestinian crisis going on in Israel. Like, there's all these other countries that are Muslim that have a lot of pity towards what's happening in Palestine that never even recognize Israel as a nation until now, and some of them still haven't. They are not providing additional land to help out the Palestinians. They're expecting UN to do something in Israel. Same thing goes with a lot of groups like that. The Kurds have still been wandering aimlessly trying to find an actual home in the Middle East. I think the same situation occur I mean, is the same thing in North Korea. I think with North Korea, the other problem is, is that when we think about foreign aid, you have to think about the morals of foreign aid. If you provide foreign aid to another country, and we've provided foreign aid to North Korea, granted, but when you provide foreign aid to another country, that means that you're supporting, you're literally financing them in some capacity to probably keep their same regime that's in power in power. 
So if you give any money to anybody in terms of foreign aid and provide any assistance, it also comes with that side message that's attached to it. Is that like, let's say we provided all this assistance and stuff to China or we built them, self, them, built them up in trade and all this stuff. In the end of the day, we are financing all the atrocities they commit on their, human, on their population by, you know, engaging in trade with them. Same applies to foreign aid. And that same system has been in place in a lot of countries that we've provided aid to, including countries like Iran, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, in the past or in the present, that you're, or Cuba nowadays because we're trying to help, help out their regime. Like, you're doing all kinds, you've done a lot of kinds of that kind of stuff in the past, that that, like, that moral argument should be in place, but it hasn't meant anything. Why did we provide North Korea with aid? I mean, we're, they're worried about like they're going to nuke us and they don't have any rights and all this stuff. We shouldn't help them at all, but we do. So my point is with all that stuff is that if you ever look at American foreign policy in the past when it comes to aid, it doesn't generally make any sense because we, we help out all these countries that literally want to bomb us and call us all kinds of crazy names and want to do all kinds of crappy, all kinds of bad stuff to us. But we let it go because we see all these people are dying and we need to help. That's a good point about... Um... Israel. I wasn't really thinking of that parallel, but in terms of in the United States, the uh, BDS movement, boycott, divest, and sanctions, that's sort of saying we should not be funding the Israeli government because of what they're doing to the Palestinian people. I think the same logic kind of, like you were saying, applies to the North Korea situation, which is if you don't support the regime, if you think they're truly, you know, kind of rotten to the core and what they're doing right now isn't the way they should be governing and that it's unjust, evil, unfair then yeah, you're right. We shouldn't support them. So uh, very solid point critique. Tyler, anything you want to say to cap this one off? Yeah, I mean, why should we subsidize the regime? It just makes no sense to me. And I don't think we should do it. Or if we do it, we get some kind of concession where we're like, hey, we're going to bring in some people uh, to, I, I don't know exactly what we would do. Maybe you have to open up a little bit. Maybe we need our own agencies going in there to see the true extent of what COVID's done to your nation so we can provide uh, the, the amount of aid that is actually necessary. And if maybe certain steps are taken, I could see it being reasonable. But right now, you're right. We're just financing a regime that we don't want in power anyway. They keep saying, oh, we're in talks, we're in talks. North Korea is playing the U.S., they're continuing talks only to continue talks. There's no, there's nothing is going to come of these talks. It's not going to happen in the near future. And in the long term, the only way the Kim regime is going to be taken out is by their people rising up. And that's very difficult and unfortunate. It's going to take an extremely long time. But that's not going to happen if we keep propping up this regime. It just makes no sense. So Well, I guess so. Things internationally, you know, still some tension, still some issues. Russia isn't the only game in town in terms of things to worry about in the world. But how about domestically? Things must be going great at home, right, Pratik? What, what's been going on recently? <laughs> not really, but... Jen Psaki had her final press conference that happened yesterday. She's going to be replaced by Corinne Jean-Pierre. Um, and the, the press conference covered a lot of variety of issues. It was primarily focused on the American Rescue Plan, which is this major law enforcement plan that's going to create more and more budgets to be um, put into local communities and throughout many of, this, uh, many of the larger cities for them to increase more community policing and to increase the amount of funding that goes into responders and services and providing higher salaries to police officers to entice them to join the force. And... That's close to $10 billion currently and is going to, the president is, um, is, provide, is um, wanting to provide an additional $30 billion in the new funding, which will come in the 2023 budget, which he's going to propose in the near future. 
Well, that was the main point of the talk. Um, not there wasn't much controversy around it. Republicans and Democrats aren't really split on the issue of law enforcement. Democrats just like to talk about how you know the law enforcement, um, the situation that's currently in place may tend to be racist. There's more, you know, there's more crime that happens because cops are not of all the different. It's not as diverse of a community, and they need to have a more diverse police force to be able to, you know, assist in the community needs and and engage in more community policing, essentially. Then you have the other main talks of the day where, in the terms of the questions, involve baby formulas, gas prices, and inflation. So... Obviously, with baby formula, you've you've been seeing recently that there's been a big shortage when it comes to baby food and baby formula that's available in the markets, in the supermarket, and that has led to people freaking out a lot about what's going on, and they're like, we need to help, you know, provide food to the babies. It's actually like the opposite um, effect of, this is like the pro-life people argument, is they're arguing that we care about the babies we're worried that they're not having enough food. This is a problem with the Biden administration. They haven't done enough to try to increase the amount of baby formula supply. And because they're not doing that, it's harming the you know health of the babies themselves and all this other stuff. And that's been the main point of contention. Even the former first lady, Melania Trump, had something to say about it. And she, was t- she took shots at Biden saying the administration isn't doing a good enough job at making sure that we're, they're protecting the lives of civilians, including the babies by... Li- by you know not trying to help out increasing the short in increasing the supply of baby formula and then last but not least obviously gas prices surged at record highs of four dollars and 43 cents a gallon which is the highest in the history of the united states this is biden's legacy basically is he's always going to be remembered for having the highest gas prices in the country of all time many of that stuff is due to all the things we talked about before whether it's inflation whether it's costs going up, whether it's labor shortages, whether it's yada, 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 it all connects and basically argues that, you know, gas prices are up. What is the Biden administration doing about it? And that was the main point of the day. And Jen Psaki didn't really do a great job at answering these questions. She basically just kind of said that, you know, that's the cost of what's going on right now, which is the unemployment rate is at 3.6%. These are great signs for the business economy. And most people that are in business know that is not a really good sign. And if you really want to worry about consumer confidence, you look at the stock prices right now, and it's down almost 5000 thousand dollars for the past three weeks so tyler and nick what are your thoughts and all the crap that i just said it is not good the country is not in a good place well here's the thing everyone with biden when they elected biden over trump they basically said look biden he's not the best guy he's he's old he's not completely with it but he's a moderate and with that moderate administration it will be more boring boring it will be more status quo things won't be all over the place and because of that the country will be in a better place and it will justify voting in joe biden and his administration and whether or not you believe it was all his fault he has been in power for a few years now and everything is going sideways the economy's not doing well again largely from the headwind of having COVID in the first place like a lot of those ramifications happen years later which is why we're seeing that the gas price is going up with something like the Keystone Pipeline, maybe that wouldn't have single-handedly changed the game in our own energy production, but him signaling we're gonna shut down this pipeline uh, with concerns about climate change when now we do have these gas prices going through the roof with the war in Russia and Ukraine and just all over the world, gas costing more now. Um, So that's an issue. Uh, So like, it's just so tough to say that you can justify him having had a good legacy at this point. 
And because of that, it's going to be tough for the Democrats going into the midterms and into the next election, which is why, and we're going to get into this in the future, um, they're focused so heavily on abortion and why they're trying to get some abortion bill through uh, to really say that we're trying to make a push against the Republicans pushing for abortion, trying to make this something that you can't do anymore. So ultimately, like, the administration has not gone well. Uh, while the uh, employment rate has, has is pretty low, the labor participation rate still not very high. People aren't in the workforce, so they're not counted in that number. And uh, with regards to the baby formula, I think that's just a, a COVID thing as well. I can't directly blame the administration, but they're in office and they're going to be blamed anyway. So is what it is. Are you sure that's not why they... Uh want to make abortions legal across the country because there isn't enough baby formula to go around. There we go. The deep state conspiracy theories oh starting up. I'm surprised I haven't heard that one yet. But in any case, um, yeah, I, I agree with what a lot of you said in terms of how it was framed versus how it's playing out. I mean, Biden was sworn in January of 2021. So it's only it's almost been a year and a half, not even. And yet so many things have happened that it feels like the first, it kind of reminds me of the first two years of the Trump presidency where, you know, he was catching flack every week for something. Although it's not as exciting, it's a little bit more boring. And so in terms of gas prices, for example, I mean, we've argued about this on the show plenty of times. Um, I can certainly concede on that one where, like, for example, gas production now, if you look at crude oil production, weekly average in the United States, both, you know, lower 48, and then if you consider the entire country, which includes Alaska, um, the average is higher than it was now than the first two years of the Trump presidency. However, it ramped up over Trump. And so right before COVID hit, it was around, I want to say, 13,000, just about. And now it's at 11,875. So compared to that, we are not near what the height was under Trump. By a little bit, but still not near. So in terms of what you're saying about Keystone, being able to transport oil more efficiently, not having to put it on any sort of trucks, putting it through pipelines, and that goes for gas as well. Again, Keystone XL. Um, things would have been cheaper. I don't know if we still would have been insulated from the price shocks. I still think things would have been higher. But the extent to which they would have been higher, I think, is certainly something to debate. And I think we can all agree, and I can concede, that under Biden, gas prices are higher than they would have been under someone like Trump who you know would have gone full steam ahead and really encouraged the production a lot more domestically than this administration is doing. For as much as they say, we're releasing the strategic reserves, you know, uh, that's not exactly the same as bolstering new production. But that aside, the baby formula thing, I don't know, it's such a weird thing for Saki to go out on her last press conference and then get challenged on stuff like that. Like, how do we not have food to feed the babies in this country? Like, if you're really thinking of like someone's last press conference, you want them to go out with a bang. You want them to say, look, we passed this $1.9 trillion bill that's going to fundamentally improve American people's lives across the country. We're spending on infrastructure, transportation, you know, all this good stuff that people really like. And then you're hit with gas is up. We've got no baby formula. We've got none of this, none of that. Families are struggling. And so it's it's kind of a very, you know, I think a sad way for Saki to go out. Sure, she's going to, you know, kind of go out on top in a way, but, you know, we'll see how the new press secretary does. Yeah, and I mean, as I said, the main the main problem with all this stuff too is especially when it comes to gas prices soaring. It's not just 
one thing or another. It's a lot of different things. When gas prices go up, inflation goes up because the cost of transporting materials goes up. And then the cost of, uh, you know, people going to work also goes up because the cost of gas goes up. So it all kind of connects in place with everything else. Plus, when you can't find people and then you have to find somebody and to do something, you're going to pay them more money. So then you're paying them more money, which also means they're going to be paying more in gas whenever they're going places because it's all connected there somehow as well. So the thing is that all of this stuff is kind of a loop which happens whenever you can't find people or when you can't find supplies. It's all connected. And the same thing with the gas stuff in this situation too is that with the Russia-Ukraine war going on, that's also like led to gas prices going up even more. But gas prices were already through the roof before Russia-Ukraine even started. This is only multiplied to that effect. So is one of those that it's bad and this is going to be a part of Biden's legacy. It's the same as in the past whenever Jimmy Carter was president and the re only thing any of us can ever remember about Jimmy Carter because we weren't there in his presidency was all those documentaries that talk about how expensive gas was and how people had to stand in lines and how bad the economy was because the whole you know oil embargo and yada 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 is what you remember and the Iran stuff. So I think this is kind of Biden's legacy. Biden is going to be remembered for one of these things. It's not a good thing to be remembered for. And the fact is that his administration kind of brought it on themselves a little bit too because they're seen as the party that is anti-oil and natural gas. They were seen as the party that was for that kind of stuff. Let's, let's say this was Donald Trump and the same stuff was going on. The same stigma wouldn't be there. But because this is happening under Biden, this is part of, you know, what people think when they think of Democrats. The whole Democratic primary process was all about how we're going to transition from oil, oil, natural gas and fast fossil fuels. Like, that's what you thought of. And Biden was actually the most conservative of all the Democrats on that topic, too, in the Democratic primaries. And that's the irony, is he was the only one that wasn't talking about banning oil and natural gas. That was half the party that was in the presidential primaries of 26 people in the Democrats. So I think is one of those that, yeah, we can give him flack. And, like, he will be given flack regardless of whatever people think about it because that's part of his legacy. But then some things like baby, baby formula, I don't know how much you're going to be able to pin that on his administration. That's just a factor of the supply shortage. But obviously, I mean, Dem Republicans are going to use as much fuel in their, you know, tank that they can for the midterm elections. And this is just adding more fuel to the fire. I think that this is going to be another reason why a lot of people may not vote Democrat or Republicans are going to go out in massive numbers to vote Republican. Yeah, in terms of messaging, I, I think you're pretty spot on. It will be interesting to see how this next cycle plays out in terms of social media engagement. I mean, during COVID, everyone was at home. People weren't really moving around. So all the traditional you know, kind of grassroots stuff to get people engaged past that first vote, it hasn't really been happening. I mean, granted, it's coming back now, so we're going to see sort of a normal election this time. But, you know, social media platforms will continue to play a huge role in terms of how that gets messaged out to the American public. So, Tyler, what is going on with our favorite platform, Twitter? Yeah, well, so the Republicans certainly have gas in their tank, quite literally, but so does Elon Musk. This multi-billionaire has been taking over the world with all of his different businesses. You got SpaceX, Tesla, 
etc. Neuralink. Um, but right now, he's actually looking to buy Twitter. We've talked about it on this show. You've probably heard about it. Uh, and because he wants to buy Twitter, although the deal hasn't gone through, he is doing some checks on whether or not uh, there are too many bot accounts on the platform that could hinder the uh, a deal going through. But if it does go through, he plans to reinstate Donald Trump, something that I had been saying on the show for a few weeks now because he's all about freedom of speech and he wants to be an open platform for discussion. Um, so if, for those of you that don't remember, after the January 6th Capitol riots, many social media took and absolutely banned Donald Trump from their platforms, first started with Twitter, then moved on to Facebook, uh, Instagram, YouTube, etc., but it's been a few years now. If Elon Musk is able to take over Twitter, he says he wants to reinstate Donald Trump. And this has some significant implications for uh, the actual political process and what happens. Because we all know how much news coverage Donald Trump gets when he has a platform to reach the people. Right now, he actually Donald Trump actually says he's never going back to Twitter. In fact, he's going to be staying on his own social media platform that is indeed struggling at the moment. It's called Truth Social. But everyone predicts if he's reinstated on Twitter, gets his 70 million followers, etc., he'll be hopping back over to that platform, if not for anything, to get his messaging out there and to drive people to Truth Social, I guess, in his mind. Uh, but honestly, I think Twitter is going to change the game in terms of the next election, the next presidential election. We could see an up the rising of Donald Trump again in the political scene, and he's had a kind of a lull over these past uh, year, year and a half. Um, so what are you guys' thoughts on this? Do you think if... Let's say Elon Musk is to buy Twitter and reinstates Donald Trump. It will have a significant impact in politics in America or not. It may be a principled move in terms of favoring free speech and really trying to make that a cornerstone, more of a cornerstone of the platform around transparency and why people are banned and then reinstating them if they think that ban was wrongful. Um, but I think past that, if we're you know going to read between the lines here, part of it is just political gamesmanship. If you genuinely believe that if Trump is reinstated on Twitter, he's going to win the next presidential election or he's going to have significant, significant influence over the Republican Party, which would be the governing party of the country, then it is in your best interest as a business owner to kind of cozy up to them and say, hey, look, I'm going to do you a favor. Do me a favor when the time comes to pay me back. So I think in that way, you know, as much as we want to like talk about free speech, and I'm sure... I'm sure from Elon's perspective, that could legitimately be what he thinks, that it may be a principled position here. But another part of me is thinking this is just a prudential sort of business move and that it's sort of insulating the company should he take it over in this buyout, which he's being very weaselly about and, you know, throwing the markets all over the place in terms of what he's saying. Oh, maybe I won't buy it if there's too many bots. Maybe I will. We'll see. You know, maybe I wake up on the wrong side of the bed next Tuesday and I decide to scrap the whole deal. You never know with Elon. He's a big troll, like Tyler has said in the past. But again, I just think this is a very prudent move to say, hey, if the Republicans are going to be in power, I'm going to be nice to them. So when it comes time for people to cry out, we should regulate Twitter. Who wants to regulate Twitter? It's the Republicans. So by doing them a solid, you decrease the pressure on yourself and the company and ensure that your profitability can continue. Hold on. It was a business move to ban him in the first place, saying that... Yeah. Our advertisers are scared because we got Donald Trump just going off and, and there's no regulations on Twitter and whatnot. So it seems like either way you go, it's a business move. So what I would say to what Nick said is when it comes to Donald Trump, what we've noticed is that at least in the 2020, 2022 primaries and in up to the 2024 primaries, 
Donald Trump is completely blowing out Ron DeSantis. This is the only actual two candidates that we know for the Republican Party for the time being, because we kind of know Ron DeSantis is going to run against Donald Trump. It's a 55% to 26% poll, according to Emerson. Like, it's a big enough poll in 538 that you're like, wow, Donald Trump actually matters still. Then if you look at any of the polling data for any of the candidates that are going on in the midterm elections right now in GOP primaries, if you're not endorsed by Donald Trump, there's a 9.5 out of chance out of 10 that you're not going to win in the next GOP primary for whatever whatever you're running for. So his um, endorsement matters a lot. And what that tells you is that Donald Trump is still the face of the Republican Party because whatever Donald Trump is saying, whoever he endorses, whatever like whatever candidates that he's behind, those are your candidates for the Republican Party. And what that means is to say that there's still a lot of Republicans in the country that are very fond of Donald Trump. And that also means that there's more Republicans in the country than not that will support Donald Trump if he runs again in the 2024 election. And all that stuff comes to say is that it, the news, if Donald Trump is reinstated back on Twitter, is going to go is going to go ham on you know trying to post everything that Donald Trump does because that's how it was in 2020 whenever he ran was running for re-election again. That's how it was for 2016, and that's how it was between 2016 and 2020 because that's when the news was at its finest. Is when Donald Trump was president. So I so I really think that it was is better for Twitter. It's better for, to, if you want to actually create more recognition with the company, if you want to get more people using your platform for Donald Trump to be reinstated on Twitter and to be reinstated on all the social media platforms. But the fact is that all these companies have done a lot of stupid things over the last couple of years. I mean, it's not just Elon Musk right now. You look at the stock market. The stock market is down almost 5,000 points over the past three to four weeks. Like, yeah, that's because people don't like Biden. People don't have high consumer confidence on the current administration. And there's also a strong leaning because if most of the Republicans are voting for whoever Donald Trump endorses, well, there's also a strong leaning towards Trump. So the fact is that in the next few years, you're going to see a massive shift. You're probably going to see Republicans sweep a lot of houses that they haven't swept before. And all of this gets connected back to this whole Twitter debate. Because if Donald Trump is reinstated on Twitter, that's going to mean wonders for the company. It's going to mean wonders for the stock price. And it's also going to be wonders for Donald Trump as a whole. And for most of the Republicans that are going to be voting for Donald Trump. So I think if you look at it in the big picture of things, Donald Trump is still is basically back. There's nothing you can really do about it. The Republicans may have tried to do whatever they can to alienate themselves from Donald Trump, and it's probably going to backfire, if, even if they're incumbents, because you're going to have people that are going to lose if they're not endorsed by Donald Trump. And it's the same story again, where Donald Trump basically is the Republican Party. So I don't know. It's whatever way you want to look at it, but I think there's a lot of political implications to whatever you know Elon Musk decides to do with Twitter. You don't think anyone else can come up and challenge him, though, because if you listen to kind of TV shows, debates, Hoover Institute, any of this old, older, you know, Republican stuff, traditional media in 2014, they all assumed it was going to be Jeb Bush who was running. That was the assumption. And Jeb Bush did run. But then Trump comes out of nowhere, completely demolishes him and makes a joke out of the Bush family name. So I, I don't know. Are you going to say that Trump is the only way? Yeah. I, I guess yeah, I think he is. You think so? I think he is because so something I wanted to bring up. It's not just to Twitter's Twitter's benefit. It's not just to 
the Republicans' benefit. It's to the media's benefit, who had their best ratings of all time when Trump was posting, and they could be outraged. Not just Republican media, but Democratic media. That means basically all of traditional media is going to be covering Donald Trump. And I don't think anyone else is going to be able to get that kind of exposure. I don't know if that Trump can be out-Trumped, let's say, in the PR game. I think that's what he's best at. So it doesn't even necessarily have to do with policies or competence. It has to do with exposure. And purely him being exposed to so many people, I think, is going to give him a big leg up in that next election. And it's funny how in the Democrats, too, like, their approval rating, whatever the situation is. In the end of the day, if Joe Biden was to run again in this primary, and let's say he wasn't president, or if he is president, or whatever the situation is, he is still the leading person in all of their presidential primary polls. They don't have anybody even close to Joe Biden. The closest person they have to Joe Biden is Kamala Harris. I think the fact is that when it comes to all the Republican side, that's the same thing. No one is going to be in their right mind to go against Donald Trump, apart from a few people like Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis is probably his most closest competitor that probably has some percentage of a chance. I don't really see any of these other you know, potential opponents really going against Donald Trump because they know what Donald Trump means. And eventually they're all going to need Donald Trump whenever they're back in their political seat in office. This is politics. These people are all corrupt. They're all trying to do whatever they can to get back in office to make money off you and me and every other person that's a taxpayer. So I think if you look at it from all that aspect, Donald Trump still has his way in that party. I don't know if he's going to win in a general. I don't know if like what is going to happen. I mean, obviously, 2020 is not a really good... This whole election cycle and just all the stuff that has happened it's with Biden's weird. presidency yeah. has been really bad. But we will see when that time comes. Obviously, we're not going to know who's going to win in the presidential election. But in terms of primaries, I would be, like, remiss to say that, you know, if Donald Trump doesn't win the Republican primary, I will be in shock. And the fact is that the only thing that can prevent Donald Trump from running is Donald Trump. If Donald Trump feels he's too old, if he feels like he's not, uh, you know, I wanting so. to go for four years and the fact is that donald trump is really old but he's also the same age as george w bush and bill clinton ironically found out like at 75 which is not that old because you have people like joe biden in office right now we were really old so old people are how the way to go right now but look so you go on the street right now you talk to the average voter you ask him do you know who ron DeSantis is do you know who donald trump is it's it's not even a co contest so in my mind, simply having that name recognition is going to be everything and is going to win him the primary if he elects to run, which I think he will. I think he's been hinting at it. And with this ex upcoming exposure, potentially on Twitter, um, I think that'll happen. Do you guys think if Elon Musk doesn't buy his Twitter that he is reinstated on the platform be just as a business move? Because we said it was a business move. It would still be a smart business move if it weren't Elon Musk doing that kind of thing. No, because it's the same board members and uh, original founders and leadership. So unless you're swapping out who's in control of the company or who's a controlling interest, then I don't think that decision fundamentally changes because a lot of this is, you know, like you were saying, they already did the calculations, they already figured it out. And so if this is the conclusion that they arrived at, it's very difficult to convince anyone in a business setting. If someone, for example, comes up with a proposal to say, we should do X and someone else says, no, we should do Y, the people who voted for the first thing, if they stay in a position of leadership and authority and influence within the company, you're likely to see that same original policy carry through to the day. Now, if in 10 years you get the other group who's now in leadership and it's cycled out, then you could see a big shift. But within that, without that change in leadership, 
I highly doubt any of these people are going to arrive at the conclusion that they need to reinstate Trump. There's one thing that can change their mind, the stock price absolutely tanking, which has happened, and this could be something that boosts it back up. So in my mind, business evolves over time, and you have to adapt to the present circumstances, and the present circumstance is Twitter stocks kind of not, it's kind of going downhill at the moment, and they need something to change that, and Donald Trump certainly would be something that could change that. I want to actually bring one thing up, though. When it comes to this whole Twitter, when it comes to this whole Twitter debate, I think the irony is that when it comes to Donald Trump, these people are stupid that they're losing money. They know they're going to lose money and they're still deciding to ban Donald Trump. And the only reason that people even went on Twitter for the most part was because Donald Trump was president and he was tweeting on Twitter. So I think that, you know, whenever you're stupid business people and these people are stupid business people, where are you going to alienate all the random people like me that are Republicans? Because we're going to be like, man, you banned Donald Trump. Well, that's basically you banning me too because were I'm a Were you an of avid Trump. Twitter user, Pratik, before? No, but I'm not going to be now. So that's what I'm saying. That's, that's the point. That's my point, it's, though. You but weren't only even their reason, face. But put it this way. The only reason I would even look at Twitter was because Donald Trump tweeted on Twitter. Why else would you use Twitter? Twitter is a useless platform. It's not like Facebook or Instagram or something. It's Twitter. There's nothing that's beneficial from Twitter. There's only a few characters you have to even talk. No one's going to go ahead and read any of the things. I've had the same amount of followers on Twitter as most people have had for the last like four or five years. No one is actively trying to follow anybody on Twitter. No one's doing anything on that stupid platform. Pratik, that's because you don't do anything. Have. You can't say, oh, I have an inactive account that I haven't used for five years and nothing's changed and then blame it well, to say the platform is stagnating meanwhile other people are coming up with new accounts and doing just fine i mean look if you look at the actual numbers twitter is one of the least used platforms i think in all honesty twitter got more recognition they got more advertisement and they literally got you know, more people Fair. on the platform because of trump so yeah. i think that these people are stupid who cares? The stock market is already down like 5,000 points because of these geniuses being there in the first place. So let it tank a little bit more. Twitter's not going to learn any lessons until some smart business guy like Elon Musk takes over because whoever's in charge of that stupid platform, they don't really know how to run their business anyway. So who really cares? That's my point. Republican, and the thing is, you're imagine how many Republicans you're alienated by, alienating by banning Donald Trump. And banning all these other people for twist, Twitter misinformation, which all ended up being true. Part of me says COVID they're actually not missing much of the base that would use Twitter anyway. So they're not really like losing a lot of people, but they're losing the exposure in the media that gets people interested in Twitter. I think that's where the big money is being lost. And look, this goes back to the first question we asked. It's like, should you be able to ban world leaders or former world leaders? I don't know. Like, is that a reasonable so. question? And that was like the first question asked. We're not even talking about it anymore. But I think Elon Musk, and we could talk about it being a business decision, but I think in terms of values and ethics, I think he's fundamentally saying here, no, if you're like a world leader to some capacity, we should get your voice out there uh, for better or worse, basically, because exposure is the best disinfectant, let's say. All right. Well, so Pratik was kind of railing on the Dems earlier. Um, and so I, I'm just wondering if you could earlier, just... you mean for the entirety of this podcast's existence, Hey, we okay. did talk about <laughs> Trump quite a bit. So I'm glad we got that in this week. Uh, <laughs> gotta do the critique special, but in any case, how about we move on to something, you know, something fun, something lighthearted abortion critique. What's, uh, what's going on? There was some big bill in the Senate. What happened to it? Yeah. 
So there was a Senate Democratic bill and it failed. I'm just kidding. So Senate Democrats um, had a bill to keep abortion legal and nationwide, which fall, fell in a GOP-led filibuster. The GOP voted from, from 50-49 with the help of, um, what is his name? The senator from... Mansion, West Virginia. Oh yeah, West Virginia Mansion. So 51-49 vote to basically abolish, I mean, to basically eliminate the bill from keeping abortion illegal nationwide. So what that does is that basically activists are freaking out still. You have the same stuff going on. You have all these people angry that, um, you know, abortion is going to be outlawed. And then obviously in the end of the day, the GOP are a united front. Manchin, I mean, he's technically whatever he is, but he has voted Republican a lot. And in this situation, he was one of the turning points to actually, you know, flip it in the Republicans' favor to, um, you know, prevent abortion from, to basically make abortion illegal if that does happen. So it's a very interesting story. I think the main points to take from it is that this is probably, the Democrats are trying to make this a major issue in the next election. It might help them. It may hurt them thing is that they haven't had any legislative wins this is another example of them having failing to have a legislative win because even if they have more democrats in the senate or if, as many as the republicans then the fact is that they were still unable to you know protect abortion rights and again this adds on to biden's great legacy because you know he's going to be the president if abortion gets outlawed that abortion is going to be outlawed under joe biden so what are y'all's thoughts on this, all this stuff? I don't think the Democrats expected to get the vote. I think they expected to have, to now be able to say, look, Republicans voted against it even after knowing that Roe v. Wade is likely to be appealed because of the leak. So I think that's just purely as political ammo moving into the next election and say, look, we tried, but none of them were getting on board. And because of that, we can't actually provide uh, abortion protection for you in the future. I, you mentioned I don't know if it's going to help them or hurt them in the next election. I anticipate that it's going to help them a little bit because despite everything that's going on, there are a lot of people that are very staunch on the issue of abortion and giving women's rights especially. That's something that's very important in the Democratic Party. So I think it's certainly going to help Democrats, and that's pretty much the only thing they have in their in their like in terms of political ammo right now. So I think they're going to use it as much as they can. Uh, but like I said, I don't think they ever expected to get 60 votes in the Senate for this. I think it'll help in some districts, but not in others. If you're a remotely savvy Republican, what you can say is, look, the Democrats aren't even all agreed on this. They couldn't even get this bill passed, and they had the majority. So that's even more proof that Roe v. Wade should have been overturned, because people can't agree on it. It should be up to the states to decide. And us as a state, whoever, whatever you know, county or district you're representing, we don't think there should be this legal protection to abortion. And granted, they would frame it a little differently, but... I think by Manchin voting no on this, it's showing the continued disunity within the Democratic Party where I don't know what Manchin's future is going to be, quite frankly. I, I understand that we've talked about this plenty of times on the show where he's voted against the Democrats' majority pretty much every chance that he's had available on big issues. Smaller issues, he goes along. But the big issues, the ones that really count, whether it was the big infrastructure plan that Biden was trying to pass or it was, um, sorry, the second, the second one, not the $1.9 trillion, but the other vote that he and Kirsten Sinema voted no on. And now this one with abortion, he's voting no. So in a lot of ways, he's like a black sheep of the party. He votes more like a Republican in all these situations when it's a really big national vote. 
And I just don't know what his future is going to be within the Democratic Party. It makes people sort of question, what does it mean to be a Democrat if someone like Manchin can hold such opposing views to the one I own? Now, if you actually look at his opinions, he is more of a Democrat than people give him credit for. But he'll pick these like two or three fringe cases and then kind of pat himself on the back and say, oh, look, I found, you know, one loophole that I wasn't totally happy with. Therefore, this legislation should not go through. And there's the common saying that's, you know, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And I think Manchin suffers a lot from that. He's looking for perfection, something that he can really get behind. But look, maybe it's a principled line and he's drawing a line in the sand and just won't do it. And you got to respect the man for that. But at the same time, if you're a Democrat and you're holding a vote like this, it's very difficult in terms of the messaging, especially when the common messaging is, if you look across the country, most people, in terms of Gallup polling and others, are in favor of Roe v. Wade and are in favor of this sort of abortion protection. And you've got millions of women in the country who, you know, are going to be pretty heated about this and who it's going to be affecting. So I, I think that's the, you know, sadness in all of this is, you know, you have something this big and there's not even a national referenda you feel like your voice isn't even being counted on something that major where this wasn't up for election last time. All the people who are in right now, they weren't running on abortion. But now, going forward, they will be. And so we'll see how that shifts in the polls. But unfortunately, much like what happened with Afghanistan and other issues, there's probably going to be something else that comes up closer to the midterms actually taking place that could derail all the momentum that's behind the abortion movement right now, abortion access movement. And I think the other thing we always have to keep in mind when it comes to abortion is that the people that are usually the most vocal about it are the people that are going to have strong opinions about the issue. Most people don't have a lot of strong opinions. They're either going to be pro-life or pro-choice. They're probably somewhere in the middle. Well, when it comes to these kind of things, whenever it leads to something like this, you have to put it as a, you have to look at it in a political perspective a little bit. This is why I think Democratic Party has generally been a better, stronger party than the Republican Party has being a Republican. Democrats are usually are usually united on all fronts, no matter regardless of whatever the issue is, regardless of how they feel about it. They all vote one way and they all vote in one direction. And that's why that party generally succeeds much more than our party. They had one guy vote against their Democratic Party and this whole vote failed. And that was Joe Manchin. We have a ton of Joe Manchins in our party. Right now, our party is voting as a united front, which is like the first time we've ever really done that. We have the Mitt Romneys, the Susan Collins, the Lisa Murkowskis. we got a whole band of people that are like, you know, flaky Republicans. But we're voting as a united front on certain issues, and this is one of them, because our party is thinking as a party. So I just think this is one of those things that, you know, we always think that, oh, these people need to have individualistic um, right, opinions and blah, blah, blah. But in the end of the day, if your party is not united on a lot of these key issues, you're never going to win as a whole as a party. And I don't really think that this is going to impact anything that much in the larger spectrum because Biden has had a lot more losses than wins in his presidency. And I really think when it comes to abortion as a whole too, like we we tend to look at the people with the picket signs and we tend to think of the people that are very pro or against the topic. But a lot of the people are in the middle. You have a lot, you have a lot of pro-life women that may be in favor of Roe v. Wade, but are pro-life. You have a lot of women in general that are very split on the topic. It's not a, you know, it's not a black and white issue. 
a lot of women that tend to be more involved in the abortion and women rights debates and all that stuff, they tend to be, you know, heavily involved in this topic. But you also have a lot of women in your country that are pro-life. And they, I've even met a lot of pro-life people that are Republicans that are literally Republicans because they're pro-life. So I think that, you know, it's one of those things that you look at it in a lot of different angles. I don't really know how much impact it's going to have. It may have some. But the fact is that in the end of the day, this is going to impact Biden's legacy in some way because in the end of the day, they had abortion outlawed and it's going to be under his presidency and this is going to be the vote that is going to be looked at in the future as being the vote that would have tried to you know, prevent all this stuff from happening and preventing Roe v. Wade from being outlawed. And it failed because the Democratic Party wasn't able to unite as a whole front. And this is the same thing Republicans fail at doing all the time, but for a change, Republicans have got their act together. So, well... I don't you know, know it, it hasn't gone through, though. Roe v. Wade has not yet been repealed. Yeah. Just like how Finland hasn't joined NATO yet. So, Nick, do you want to tell us about the uh, prospect of Finland joining NATO? Can I just say one last thing on the abortion issue? Yeah. So one thing I wanted to note is that, you know, you'll, you'll see this a lot online a lot, which is that you'll see this places like Reddit, Twitter, other online spaces, where it's, oh, if the majority of the country is in favor of abortion, uh, services and protections under under the law, then why doesn't legislation like this pass? Why did this not go through in the Senate? Well, the People's House, Congress, is the House, okay? That's where you have actual population representation, okay? It passed there. You get to the Senate. The Senate is overly representative of rural interests in states that have very little in terms of population. So in, in terms of, you know, Having a state like Wyoming or North Dakota or South Dakota, having the same level of vote as all of California, uh, New York, pick some other big liberal state. Rhode Island, like, Connecticut. Right. Yeah, same that's thing. fair. Uh, that's fair. But <laughs> what I'm, but critique. It is a fact that Republicans are overrepresented in the Senate in terms of population. In terms of population, so I, I just wanted to offer that as one thing where the Senate is truly. All right, the states balancing against each other. And that shows that the states are split. While the, the overall people of the country, by pure population, can be in favor of it, you could also have this split amongst the states, which means that it doesn't get passed. So I don't know if that's even remotely helpful, but just wanted to say that that's how the government is structured. And so if you have an issue with that, then we may need to fundamentally restructure the government. I don't believe in that. I believe in checks and balances. But in any case, just wanted to offer that to say... Most people did actually vote for it, and that's how representatives did vote in the House. And before Nick takes Finland, I want to rebut that a little bit. The same argument that Nick just made, think of all the states in the country that vote Democrat all the time. Vermont, for example, Rhode Island, New Hampshire. They represent the entire country, by the way. You know the small states? The same as the North Dakotas, the Idahos, the Wyomings. The problem with all this stuff is that in the end of the day, whenever the midterm elections take place, and when Republicans sweep House, the same argument that Nick is trying to say is that, oh, the House voted in this particular way. The House is going to vote really red in the, in the future. So the thing about Congress is Nick's right. It's always changing. But the fact is that, you know, when you have certain things going on, it's not only one issue that's going to change the country. People who have, well, I'm pro-choice, but that doesn't mean anything. Because I'm going to vote Republican because I'm Republican for another a lot of XYZ other issues that you've heard of in the show. 
So I think it depends. Like, they, I mean, you might believe something, but that doesn't mean you're going to vote based on that one issue. But then you're going to have a lot of single issue voters that are voting on abortion. But more likely than not, the people that are pro-life are going to vote Republican and the people that are pro-choice are going to vote Democrat. And that's never going to change because that's the only issue that they care about. I just want to bring that in because in the political system, that's the way it is. And when 2022, you're going to have other things that the conservatives are going to have bills on that Democrats are going to oppose with a passion and there's going to be some Gallup poll that says they're against it. But at the end of the day, they all vote. we're probably going to vote in massive numbers to have Republicans in power. So that's the consequence of them doing that. And they knew that going in. Otherwise, they would have voted Democrat. So I just think that when it comes to polling data, when it comes to all this stuff, you have to take it with a grain of salt because in the end of the day, you're not voting because of one issue. You're voting for a variety of issues, and that's just one issue in the variety of issues. That's fair, but I don't think you rebutted my original point, which is that rural, rural, rural states are overrepresented in the Senate. You think Democrats are winning rural counties? Look at any election map, Pratik. Get real. Republicans are absolutely crushing every rural county election across the country. And because rural counties overwhelmingly vote Republican, Republicans are overrepresented in terms of their interests in the Senate because rural interests are overrepresented in the but, Senate. But what, it's do, a what fact. do you want to do? It's a fact. What do you want to do? Eliminate all those states? That just no, have, no, I'm know, not calling for that. I'm not calling for that. I'm saying it's just don't, a fact. What we should not do, we shouldn't even have a Senate or a House. We should just have popular votes on everything. What do people want? All right, let's make that the law. What's the point of having governments? What's the point of having any of the states? Because even if rural states are more represented, the rural states' people are still people. Their voice matters as much as the person in New York. Probably not, because New York is a big state. So if you're a Republican, your voice is literally nothing. The same as no, if you're it's a overrepresented. In some state like it's Wyoming. literally the opposite. Who cares? He's saying their pop, their voice matters more. If you're a person in North Dakota voting for a vote. Republican, your voice counts more than someone in California. But voting for the same legislation. But if you're a Democrat in North Dakota, does your voice matter at all? Probably not, because there's more Republicans. The same as in New York. If they have a bunch of Democrats over there, if yeah, there's like two or three nationwide scale, Republicans, I'm talking about raw look, totals here, Pati. Yeah, but I'm just saying, on raw totals, you're never going to really have a full picture. In and the I'm next not calling election, for sure, the Senate to be abolished, by the way. Yeah, yeah. I'm just saying that in That's that argument heard. that you made... <laughs> Is that, you know, in that situation, if you're worried about rural interests being overly represented by Republicans, urban interests are overly represented by Democrats. Why should some state like New York or California have more voice than somebody in some state like Rhode Island? The same party. But who cares about Rhode Island? Who cares about the people that live in Rhode Island? They should all just move to California where their voice will be better heard because they're all Democrats. No, it would be less heard in California, but okay. Here's the thing, guys. What we got to do is we got to take the middle of the country and just make it three states. <laughs> just just, just th solves the entire issue. I think if we split... We got one Dakota. You got a... I don't know what else. We have Bushlandia. That's Jeb Bush's family controls <laughs> one part of the country. We've got Trumplandia. And then we've got oh, Cruise Mania or whatever. And that's how we... Cruise Mania. That's how we do it. Actually, that would just be Puerto Rico or wherever he decides to vacation whenever there's a crisis in a state. Instead of Atlantis, we got DeSantis. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but so now, Nick, we talked about this issue enough. Lead us on to Finland. What's going on over there? All right, so as we talked about at the beginning of the show, a little bit in terms of Russia, um, they're threatening to cut energy supply, specifically electricity supply to Finland. Um, for those of you who don't know, Finland is right next door to Russia. In fact, if you were in St. Petersburg in Russia, which used to be the old capital of the country way back when with Peter the Great, 
Um, if you take the train to Helsinki in Finland, it's about three hours. It's very close by. They're neighbors. They're neck and neck, right next door. So Russia is saying that if you guys actually vote to join NATO, it's going to be a big problem. Don't do it. And because you're even thinking about it, we're threatening to cut electricity off from your country. And so that's a pretty big deal. That's a pretty big threat. We'll see if they go through with it. But I mean, Finland's been getting serious about trying to join NATO. So Pratik Tyler, do you think it's even a good idea for Finland to try to join NATO when someone like Russia is right on their doorstep? Yes. It's tough because they've actually been invaded by Russia before during World War II. So it's not like there isn't precedent here. And we know Putin loves to say, well, the Soviet Union used to be this. Therefore, we should collect all of those states back within the Union. So, I, you know, it's tough. I think it is a good idea because you are preventing any sort of attack that's going to happen. They can try to shift their energy imports. It's going to be very difficult. Their energy prices are going to be much higher for a period of time. But I think in the long run, it's going to be helpful for them to have that NATO protection because they could just be invaded one day and then they'll go, I wish, just like Ukraine, I wish I was in NATO. I wish I had some sort of protection against Russia, given that they are right on my borders. Tyler basically summed up what I would say too, but what I would also say is that I think in that aspect, it'd be better for Finland to join NATO. If you join NATO, then all the other countries are obligated to protect you. But the irony in all this is that you need all the votes from all the members to be able to, you know, join NATO officially. And they don't have the vote of Turkey, so more than likely they're not going to be able to, um, you know, join NATO. And all Russia really needs is just to have a few countries like that on their side, and they can prevent anything from really happening. Once the Ukrainian-Russian war ends, once they take parts of Crimea and probably end it and, you know, get on with life and whatever the Donbass region is, once that all ends, they're probably going to attack some other country in the future. They've done it every four years, so I doubt they won't do it in the future. And all these countries are already reliant on Russian energy supply, so they are their economy is basically back, and their economy is doing good right now because they basically changed, they basically made adjustments to all the countries that banned them to other countries that are willing Hold to on. buy their crap. They're not doing good. They've spent probably a hundred billion plus on this war. There's no That's way fair. their economy is doing as That's good as fair. it could have been had they not gone in, at least in the short term. Long run, I don't know yeah. if they conquer Ukraine. Maybe that'll compensate. Long, but long run, long run, whenever you have all these countries dependent on your energy and electricity, in the end of the day, you have an upper hand over a lot of those countries. Forget about the uh, economic side of it. In terms of the military side of it, even if you have all these other problems in place, even if their military is not able to get their crap together, overall, they have more resources than everybody else. And in the end of the day, if there's other factors that you have to put into place on how, you know, what Russia is doing, if all these other countries are dependent on their electricity and energy, they have a lot, they basically have a free pass to do anything that they want. And if, they're, if the country is not a member of NATO, we already saw it with Ukraine, none of the other countries are going to help fight back against russia if some other country gets invaded aka finland in the future if that happens so i think is one of those that you're better off joining nato because if you don't join nato none of these other countries really care about you and if you are at war they're probably just going to sell arms to the opponents and to you guys and make money overall because the war is better for the economy they don't really care about your lives but as you said, they need approval from all the countries. You got Turkey. In my head, I'm going, all right, I'm Russia. I'm strategically going to pinpoint certain NATO countries and dissuade them from joining NATO by either giving them a deal or just sending them straight cash or whatever. So 
they can probably make strategic alliances within NATO to, to prevent new countries like Finland from joining NATO and then over time just invade those countries anyway. So it's going to be tough. And that I feel like that's going to happen more and more at the larger NATO gets. Like you have more states that could potentially veto. But I just briefly wanted to say in terms of uh, NATO and it's, I mean, what Tyler was saying, I think Tyler said this about Turkey where, you know, Turkey is control the Bosphorus through a treaty system and everyone's going to respect that. We put missiles on Turkish soil during the Cold War. And so both the United States, Turkey, and I guess NATO is a third party with the United States as the, as the controlling interest there. Um, we've all sort of been vying for allyship with Turkey, but, you know, things are changing and we'll see how that ends up going. I mean, maybe Turkey ends up supporting Finland's succession, but um, they would definitely be putting themselves in a weird spot because they've tried to toe the line between both one, cozying up to the West in terms of security agreements, but then two, remaining close with Russia. So they've always seen themselves as the middle ground. I mean, going back to, what is it, the Persian Empire, the Ottomans, modern day Turkey, uh, they've always sort of been their own third thing. So I don't think they're suddenly going to say, oh, we're completely allied with the European Union, or oh, we're completely allied with Russia. They're always going to play the middle ground. They've been doing that for a long time. So I don't think that's fundamentally going to change. And like Tyler said, that's going to have big implications where if you need a unanimous vote to induct someone into NATO, then there's certainly going to be a wild card. So we'll see what happens with Finland. Um, doesn't Turkey have one of the largest armies in Europe? They do. So I think that's part of it. Like part of why it's hard to go against Turkey is they're actually supplying a lot of the arms for any kind of NATO protection. So... But that's You're also right, because be... many of the European Union countries don't have militaries. So it's, that kind of adds on to that. If you had a military, then you to... wouldn't be worried about things. It's easy to be in a security alliance when you don't provide any of the security. <laughs> you know what's exactly. so interesting? Pratik, you like George Bush Sr., right? Yeah. You like Dick Cheney, right? Well, not really. Kind of. No? Kind of? In its okay. own way. All right, you get what I'm trying to do here. I mean, he was a big proponent. They were big proponents of the fact that NATO is still relevant. We should still have this military alliance. And it's okay to have this military spending because if NATO were not to exist, if we did not keep the peace in Europe, something like this with Russia invading Ukraine did happen, but on a larger scale, then the costs would be so much greater than however much we're paying for NATO right now. So, I mean, granted, Trump's whole message of they need to pay their pay their fair share, kind of like Bernie with the billionaires and taxes, except it's Europe with their defense spending. I, that's totally fair. But in terms of us being involved, I, I think we would all agree that we still need to be. But in terms of them being oh, admitted, yeah. I mean, your stuff about Ukraine, I, I don't know if that's totally fair. I mean, we did kind of tease them. At, I think it was the Bucharest summit in 2007 or 2008, where we basically said, oh, yeah, Ukraine and Georgia, yeah, eventually you guys will be part of NATO. Don't worry about it. And then Russia says, oh, my God, you, you're going to be part of NATO? No way. That's not allowed. And so Ukraine says, OK, guys, fine. We will not be part of NATO. But you know what? Let's join the EU. And then Russia annexes Crimea. And then they start the war in the east in the Donbass region. That, that's been an active war zone. I think many people forget that that has been an active war zone for the past eight years or so. It's not like this war came you know, overnight and then they started shooting. Granted, for the rest of the country, for Kiev, for the West, western part of Ukraine, that is correct. But the eastern part of Ukraine, there's been an active conflict for eight years. So, And, and that all started with uh, after Maidan, the whole 
you know, revolutionary protests in the square about getting closer to the EU. So I don't think it's very fair to say Ukraine's dumb because they didn't join NATO. They never really had a full choice in the matter because they're pressured from both sides of if you do join, if you're even thinking of joining, Russia's going to come down on you, which they did. And if you do, and on the other side, we're kind of teasing them in and trying to say, you know, we're, we're playing this weird cat and mouse game with Russia and it finally caught up to us. I think everyone is pretty much sad for Brittany Griner, who's been uh, pr- currently locked down in detention in Russia. So, Nick, what's going on there? Yeah, so Brittany Griner, Griner I'm, I'm not sure how to pronounce her last name, to be honest. But Brittany is a WNBA star who's been detained in Russia for uh, a little while. Uh, she's been in custody since February when drug-sniffing dogs found... I think it was her vape pen, cannabis oil was found in her luggage as she was playing a basketball game in Russia, so was flying back to the United States and then was imprisoned for it. I think being imprisoned for sort of three months, having an extension to four, is a little ridiculous for just having some oil in your bag. I, I don't know, that seems a little excessive to me. But um, we're thinking about doing, Russia's asking for a prisoner swap with the guy who's nicknamed the Merchant of Death. Uh, since 2008, he was arrested in Thailand. So we, we would essentially be, tr- be trading a WNBA player for a guy who is called the Merchant of Death and supplied arms, <laughs> arms to you know, different revolutionary forces, which I think in Colombia's case, it was going to be specifically supplied to kill U.S. nationals. So um, I, I'm not really sure if that's a fair trade. I think if I was in her shoes... I mean, one, I probably wouldn't have brought drugs to a country that is notorious for being hard on it and doesn't like Americans. So number one, use some common sense. You can go a day without your vape pen. Uh, Number two, on the other hand, she is an American citizen. I don't think any of our citizens should be wrongfully detained for any longer. Granted, if you break the law of another country and they detain you for a bit, that's on you, okay? If you really messed up in some way. There's other instances where, for example, we have people with diplomatic immunity, like the uh, wife of whoever that U.S. uh, national was. I forget if he was CIA. I forget if he was just regular State Department. But he was in the U.K. His wife drove around drunk, killed someone, and then got out of the country scot-free, which is ridiculous to me. I think she should have served jail time. Now, smuggling in weed or cannabis oil is nowhere near on the level of murdering someone. But it's still, hey, you're actively breaking the laws of the country that you're visiting. You're a guest. And you know what? If there's some civil penalties for that, I think you just need to wait out your term. However, I do think it's wrong that she's now caught up in this political game of the United States versus Russia and everything that's been going on. So I do feel bad for her, but I'm not really sure if it's appropriate to be trading her in a hostage swap for a guy who is known as the Merchant of Death. Pratik Tyler, starting with you, (laughs) Tyler, what do you think of the situation? Um, so do you know why she was in Russia? Was she playing in a Russia basketball game? Yep. Basketball game. Basketball league. Yep. Basketball game. Okay. Yeah. So uh, looking it up, I mean, yeah, it is a real shame. She got caught up in between all the political tensions between the U S and Russia, uh, looking at the laws in Russia, it appears possession up to six, six grams means you get a fine or 15 days of detention. She's had way more than that, but hers would be a trafficking charge, given that she had brought it in from another country. So I think that's the sticking point that they're using to keep her longer. 
It is a real shame. I don't think we should do the swap, unfortunately. She shouldn't be detained this long for what she had. But again, like when you go to a different country that has different rules and laws, you're kind of accepting whatever rule of law is in the land. And if you get caught with something that's against their law, then you're going to be punished for it. I don't believe women in the Middle East should have to wear burqas in some places. And it, But if you're a woman that goes to a place that requires burqas and you're not wearing it, you're going to be punished. And what are we going to do about it? It's not that we believe you should be punished. It's you're under their jurisdiction and you're going to be punished because of that. Um, but yeah, seeing an American citizen caught up in between this, um, it, it's really unfortunate. And I had mentioned it before the show, but like, let's say she was a star NBA player. There would be a lot of outrage and protests and, and uprising about getting these people back and like how much of a human rights violation this was and how unacceptable this was. But given that she's a WNBA star, people aren't really speaking about it. Like we found this article, but most people probably haven't heard about the situation. I had heard about it periodically, but only because I was reading the news more often. And if I weren't, I would have no idea. If I went on the street and asked someone, they wouldn't know who she was. So it's just unfortunate all around. I hope she's able to come back soon. Uh, but being exchanged for the merchant of death, I'm not sure that's the right move for the U.S. I disagree. I think you should bring her back into America. Even though there's certain laws in place that she, um, you know, broke, and there's certain things that she should have done differently. And I do think that it's kind of stupid, I agree with Tyler, for you to break the country's laws by bringing this stuff into her bag in the first place. She should have been smarter about it. In the end of the day, she's an American citizen. And regardless, these people are supposed to be granted diplomatic immunity. We don't really have great relationships with Russia, so I don't understand why America and Russia decided to play a basketball game in the first place. But because they did decide to play a basketball game, I think that these people that are in these games should be given, you know, should be given diplomatic immunity. They should be treated with more respect because they're a member of a different country. They're foreign national. And I do think that in the end of the day, regardless of whatever, how bad this other person is, and this person, other person is really bad, the Victor Bout guy who's an arms trafficker that's convicted in the U.S. that has some Russian, you know, heritage and he's part of Russia. In the end of the day, the person that, Brittany Griner is an American basketball player, so she's an American, and you have to bring those people back because those are American citizens. I don't really care what sports league she plays in. I don't care if she's a woman or if she's a man. In the end of the day, she's a sports athlete that was sent to play in Russia because of the American, you know, league that sent her to no, play no, there in the no, first place. No, that's not true. Looking it up, I actually, it's, it appears she, she was going to be playing in a Russian league. So I bet for WNBA oh. to make more money, maybe in the offseason, they actually go to play in different leagues. It appeared she was playing for Eckhart Tinnerberg in Russia's Professional Women's Basketball League, and the drug charge she was sentenced under carries a maximum penalty of 10 years in prison. Which is pretty crazy. I agree. I guess, and I didn't know that part. But in the end of the day, still, she's an American national. You need to try to bring them back. I don't understand why. I mean, in the end of the day, she has broken the law and all this stuff, and it's bad. But she's still I an agree. American national. I agree she should be brought back, but should she be traded for this merchant of death guy? I mean, that's the real the question the here because Russia's kind of dictating the terms. If you want her back right now, that they're saying we'll give you her back. You got to give us this guy. My personal opinion is that you should. And even if this person is really bad, in the end of the day, there's an American life currently at stake, and this person's life would be at stake if she's stuck in Russia for ten years in jail. I think. Does it that not that set a bad precedent? More. Does it not set a bad precedent of oh, if you just detained an American citizen, you can basically trade him for whoever you want to? 
it does set a bad precedent, but it sounds even worse if they don't bring somebody back that's American that's stuck in some country in Russia because they're an athlete and they decide to play in some league, but they didn't follow some orders. So because of that, they're detained for 10 years and that person's career is well, absolutely destroyed. Let's, let's look and at she's it. an American. Let's look at it over the long term. And it's very, it's, she's caught up in the middle of this. It really sucks. But let's say in 20 years, they do this, this 10 times. That's worse than us holding our ground now and them knowing we're not just going to trade anyone for whoever you did, any American citizen you detain. But in the future, Americans would be smarter over like not having possession of other things whenever they go to different countries. Would they? (laughs) I mean, look, you do it. I mean, again, this is the thing is that in this situation, you're in a weird situation with Russia. Who's even to say that she's going to be back 10 years later? Like, we don't know. I mean, she's going to be in jail for 10 years. We don't know if you're going to let her back into our country. But the fact is that that's the current rule. And, you know, if there are American citizens like that that are stuck in other countries, that should be priority number one over trying to prevent them from having a convict back from our, from their country into their own country. Because either way, we're getting rid of a convict from America. And they're probably not going to be allowed back into our country anyway. So they're just eating in some prison cell somewhere. And we're paying for them in terms of taxpayer money. So I really think that in the end of the day, you're still losing. Even if this person is still here, might as well send that other person back. They can do all this smuggling stuff in Russia if they feel like it. And we can have some athlete back that is a member of, that represents America on the national stage. And as an athlete that is playing in a different country. How do you feel about uh, the WNBA paying her her full salary while she's in detention? I think it's a nice sort of gesture of goodwill, even if it is, since it's the WNBA, it's probably like $20, but still nice of them to be paying her her salary. Yeah, that's good. I mean, yeah, it makes sense. She uh, she was apparently a star. I don't follow Yeah, she was the number one draft pick in 2013. And she's a gold medalist. She's won twice with the U.S. women's team. So she's really good at the sport. And I mean, it's very sad, but we'll see what ends up happening because at this point it's up to the, uh, you know, whatever the president's position is for hostage negotiation. I mean, it's been ratcheted up to that level. So we'll see what the outcome is. Pratik, I'm, 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 uh, I'm surprised at the end of your statement, you didn't go. And I believe that because I'm a neocon. <laughs> well, this has nothing to do with that. If most right. neocons would disagree with me on this topic, they'd be like, that person's a convict. The convict is much worse than the athlete. You know, convict's going to cause crime. Athlete, you know, they don't cause crime that much. Convict's worse. But, you know, you can't really look at it. I mean, they're still Americans. At the end of the day, I care less about some convict person that did crazy stuff you 10 years, 10 years ago over some athlete that's an American that's stuck in some other country because in the end of the day, they're an American. You know, it would be wild all about human rights. if uh, any of this was prescribed. Let's say you go to a doctor, they're like, oh, yeah, you need some cannabis oil. You know, you're really tense lately. You got to chill out a little. You got a, you know, very difficult, stressful job. And then you go ahead, you go to some country, you whip out, you know, your cannabis oil. Uh, and then they're like, hey, this is illegal in this country. What are you doing? I, uh, I think that's why we need to legalize it everywhere. Tyler, I think that's the <laughs> message here. No, well, actually, so there are rules about that. Some countries that have medical marijuana would accept it, but if they don't accept medical marijuana, then it doesn't really matter what kind of prescription you have. Yeah, that's, it's like uh, it's like meth is legal in my country. Why can't I bring it to your country? My doctor told me it was great for me. Oh my gosh, but yeah, sad situation. We hope she comes home soon, and that they're able to get her out. 
yeah so anyways we've gone on for quite a while now and i uh, hope you guys all enjoyed episode 77 of politicana of course we will catch you next week take care